We continue our series called the Songs of Hope, looking at several psalms in the month of August and focusing very obviously on hope, hence the Songs of Hope. And uh, the dictionary, at least my dictionary, defines hope in this way, a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. There's expectation and desire. In in other words, hope is about the coming together of what you believe will happen in the future and your desire for it to happen. And when we talk about hope, it's important to think about that first part especially. We very often focus on the desire of what we want to come about. But to really find a certain hope, to to have confidence and not overconfidence, to strike the right balance, you have to think about what you believe will happen. And not only that, but why you believe that will happen. What reasons you have to think, to hope that whatever it is you want will come about. So that's exactly what Psalm 30, Psalm 130 deals with. So would you would please turn with me to Psalm 130 and let's read together about hope and find that great balance between overconfidence and underconfidence that strikes a real sustainable hope for the future. Psalm 130, this is God's word. A song of ascent. Out of the depths, I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in His word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him abundant redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is God's word. Lord, meet us here today. We ask, we pray for your name's sake to encourage our hope that we might understand a little bit more of who you are and what our own basis for confidence that things will be different for the good, what that basis is for us And how we might avoid overconfidence and a lack of confidence. We pray, meet us here in Jesus' name. Amen. Now one of the examples that my dictionary uses, as they often do, of using a word in in a sentence when you have a word in the dictionary. And so for hope, my dictionary gives one example of, I had high hopes of making the Olympic team. Okay. That was an example in there, and it just strikes me as, wow, that, that, 
That opens up a lot of possibilities. And, you know, for example, if I said that to you, you know, I had high hopes of making the uh, Olympic figure skating team. You might say, really? And you might be able to not laugh, maybe, I don't know. But you might wonder, why did you have high hopes for making the Olympic team? Mike, I don't think I have ever seen you on ice skates. I don't think you've even watched ice skating, maybe hockey occasionally. Well, that's the thing, right? What is the basis for your hope? But if I, on the other hand, if someone said that, who had been practicing for hours every day, getting up at like 3 a.m. to go to the ice arena when they could, and working hard, and having a coach, and spending hours upon hours, day upon day, week after week, year after year, and had entered some competitions, and had done some really good things along those lines, and they said, I had high hopes of making the Olympic team, you might understand. And think they weren't just a little off, but that maybe had a real possibility, even if it didn't turn out. And so that's, that's the thing. You know, as, as we look at hope, as we talk about hope, and, and to understand what it is, it is a, a belief about what is possible and a desire for it to happen. And very often, you know, we might have a very strong desire for something to happen, and we don't even worry about why we believe that might happen. We just believe. You know, that's kind of a Walt Disney sort of view of hope. It's wishful thinking. On the other hand, we want to have every reason to believe something will happen and really want it to happen, but also think it's just not going to happen. That's kind of an Eeyore view of hope, right? Oh, it'll probably all go wrong, right? I'll probably just die on the way there or something. You know, that's a little dark for Winnie the Pooh. Sorry. <clears throat> but to, to really understand hope, to, to find that balance between sort of underconfidence, a lack of confidence, and overconfidence tending toward arrogance, we need to really understand hope. And, and some of that's a personality thing. Some of it's your current life circumstances. All of those things come together and so you will probably hear what is a command, actually, in this psalm, if you notice in verse 7. You will probably hear that in a different way, depending upon who you are and what you're going through and even how you understand hope itself. Look at verse 7. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. That's a command. Hope in the Lord. It's not a command for wishful thinking. It's not a command to engage in some sort of blind faith, to leap off of the cliff or whatever it is. There's a basis for believing if you put confidence in the Lord, things will be different. That your desires have a shot of being realized and that it's not unreasonable to think that. And likewise, if you want to really hope and have confidence, I'm sorry, you, you won't really hope and you won't have confidence if you don't believe the future will be different. You have to put those things together. And so that's what we're going to dig into here with Psalm 130. This basis for hope and how you can have it when 
you understand what is possible for the Lord, and you gain a desire to see things in His timing. He is the Lord who hears and helps so you can wait for Him. Let's first look at that. That the Lord hears. Verses 1 and 2 spell this out. The Lord hears in every place. In every place. Look at verse 1. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. In the depths. I'm, I'm drowning. And that very often in, in the Scriptures is a metaphor. It could refer to literally drowning and being in deep water. But more often, especially in the Psalms and poetry, it has to do with just being overwhelmed with life, that you feel like you are drowning in your circumstances. And it could be because of enemies and opposition. It could be because of your own grief and sorrow. It could be because of your sins or your failures. All of those things come and are characterized as depths, overwhelming. And the psalmist says and wants us to, to realize that the Lord hears in every place. There is nowhere that he doesn't hear, especially when life is overwhelming. You can confidently reach out to the Lord knowing he's going to hear you, knowing that he will listen. And it's not because of who you are or what you've done. In fact, that's our great confidence. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about measuring up or anything at all. In fact, it's about the Lord, that he hears in every place with much grace. Those two factors go together. The Lord hears in every place with much grace. Look at verse 2. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The word hear is a command. It's an imperative. Spoken by the psalmist and us as we sing this psalm together or focus on it together. Lord, hear my voice. It's a strong plea, a request, bordering on a demand for the Lord to hear. But it's not just that. It's followed by another command that is in the third person, so it doesn't quite sound like a command, but it essentially is, where he says, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. A request, strongly worded, for the Lord to be attentive. Let it be, let them be, that is your ears, attentive to the voice of my supplications. There's a boldness in there. But notice what the boldness is focused on. It's not name it, claim it, I said it, you'll do this, Lord. It is, Lord, listen, Lord, hear, Lord, pay attention to what I'm saying. It's not about so much the content as the access to the Lord. To say, Lord, listen, bow down. And and in fact, we we know that it's courageous, yet there's a humility in it because he says at the last, attentive to the voice of my supplications. I don't know about you, but that's not a word I use very often at all. Supplications. It's kind of a strange word, but that's how he's characterizing his appeals. The content of what he's asking for. They are supplications. 
Lord, listen. Lord, be attentive. Tune in to what I'm saying. And that is to my request, my supplications. And the word for supplication is based on a, a verbal root that essentially means to be gracious, to have pity. Lord, be gracious. It's a heartfelt response by someone who has to one who has a need. The psalmist is owning that it is the Lord's mercy that is with much grace that he offers his requests to the Lord. That they are supplications. They are pleas for mercy. Even if he strongly words his desire for the Lord to attend to what he's saying, what he's asking for is a request rooted in the grace of God. In fact, whenever we talk to God and whenever we ask for anything, there is no other appeal that we have other than his grace, his mercy, his compassion upon us, his sense of, of our weakness and his strength, his supply and our needs. There is no other basis for us to speak to him, to ask any of, anything of him. All of our requests are supplications. There's no demand. And that ought to not make us uh, feel less confident, but ought to encourage us in our confidence. This, the, the wonder that God has promised so strongly to attend to our heart's desires, to pay attention to our requests, that we can kind of command it in a sense. Not arrogantly, but claiming the promise of God that he will listen. And that he, in his grace, will often answer. But it's all about his choice to stoop down, to span that gap. And any time that he listens, and, and every time and in every place, it's always this grace. It's only ever going to be rooted in that grace. And that's why in Hebrews 4.16 it says, let us draw near with confidence because you deserve it. Let us draw near with confidence because God owes you for all the wonderful things you've done. He says, no. Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And then he piles more terms on. So that we may receive what we deserve. So we may receive all that we've earned? No, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen to all those grace words in Hebrews 4.16. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen. The Lord will hear your prayers in every place with much grace. That should give you confidence. In other words, it's because of who He is. It is not about you other than you having a need and going to the One who can supply for it. 
So that gives you confidence. You're not asking for something he can't afford to give you. You know, you're, you're not going to your, your stingy uncle or whatever and trying to get some money from them. And, you, you know, you're not going to someone, your, your poor little sister or whatever, and asking for money that she doesn't have. You are going to the one who has everything to ask if he might give you what you need. It's rooted in Him. And in fact, there is, despite our human distortions of it, there is a beautiful uh, acknowledgement of His grace and mercy when we ask Him for stuff. Even if we ask in wrong motives, right? It's an acknowledgement that, you know what? God, you have so much that I don't. It's an acknowledgement of need. Lord, I am needy and you have. You know, imagine just flipping it around. Like if you were to, to say, you know, I expect God to ask me for stuff. Right? That's bizarre. That makes no sense. But to recognize that it's all rooted in this grace that God hears. And if you don't believe the Lord hears, you're not going to have hope. And probably the biggest barrier... to believing He hears is your lack of faith that He is a God of grace. You don't have, as James puts it, because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask with wrong motives. It's not rooted in the grace and mercy of God. And so what do you you do about that? Well, you you need to believe this, that He hears. But not only that He hears, but the Lord helps. That's our second point. The Lord helps. How? (laughs) With much patience. The Lord helps with much patience. Verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, the psalmist acknowledges it's not just the hearing that is rooted in grace, but also God's helping. Now, the word for mark here is to keep or watch or guard or observe. You know, it's about attention, not unlike the psalmist's request, Lord, hear my prayers and be attentive. Let your ears be attentive. It's, it's kind of the same thing of pay attention. In fact, the word for watchman in verse 6 is the same word in in a participle form, literally, the ones who watch. And this is watching. Lord, if you should watch iniquities, the sense is that if, if you would account for all of my iniquities, all of our iniquities, if you, oh Lord, just paid attention to our sins, No one could stand. We would be undone. If we just had a sense of you staring intently at us and counting our sins, you know, oh, you did that. Oh, you thought that. Oh, 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 oh. And if you just was keeping that list in front of you, no one could stand. We would be undone by shame and guilt and brokenness. Iniquity here is one of the three main words for wrongdoing in the Bible. The most common one is just sin, which tends to mean you fall short of the standard. You don't hit the target. 
The other common one is transgression, which means you cross the line, you trespass, you go where you shouldn't have. So you fall short of what you should have and you, or you cross the line into where you shouldn't have. And then there's this word iniquity, which is a little hard to understand. But it has to do with twistedness. Uh, a good way to think about it maybe is when we, we might call someone crooked, meaning they're kind of a, a, a cheater, they kind of cut corners, they engage in immoral, unethical things. They're, they're crooked, they're, they're bent. That's the sense of this word. And he's saying, Lord, if you paid attention to all of our crookedness, who could stand? And the implied answer is, no one. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who does good. We all are tainted. We have this corruption that infects all that we do. It's it's like we're all walking around as as carriers of, of COVID and just breathing all over the place, infecting anything that we come near. That's that's the sense of iniquity, that we're just bent. There is a stench. It doesn't mean that we are as evil as we possibly could be. That's not what it means. But it means that all that we think or say or do has something broken in it. It's twisted. We do good things, but we do them for the wrong reasons. You know, we have the right reasons, but they lead us to do the wrong things. We can't put the whole package together. We fall short. We don't do what we should. We cross the line. And the the psalmist brings this up to demonstrate God's patience. That God is not like... I had a teacher in in one of my schools. um, I think it was in a a grad school, you know, when he had high expectations for us, right? And, And he was asking questions and he would just... He would ask a question and we'd all be like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And he would do this thing where he's like, guys, come on. One of them, and this is how silly it was. This was in the the mid-90s, early internet days. And when when internet pages loaded, they would load really slow. Right? Like, you could literally see, you know, a placeholder for the image. And then it was like line by line, you know, pixel row by pixel row of the image appearing. Right? Do you remember this? If you're old enough, right? And he's like, okay, so guys, what do you see when an internet page is loading? That's what we're talking about here. And we're like, what are you talking about? And it turns out he was trying to get us to say, at that point, there was like a little triangle, a little circle, a little square. Do you remember that? That represented the image hasn't loaded yet. It's coming. This is the building blocks. Like, that is not the way God looks at us. He's not sitting there going, oh, you guys, just get out of my classroom. You know, he didn't say that. But that was what I felt. I don't think I was alone in that. The Lord doesn't mark our iniquities. He sees them all the time, but he's not going, oh man, oh man, oh wow. Oh, he's not like nudging Jesus, you know, the other persons of the Trinity going, did you see that? He's not doing that. He is patient, long-suffering. 2 Peter 3.8 puts it this way. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
You know, this patience of the Lord can make us think it's you know, sin and brokenness. It's just a part of life. To err is human. You know, and to think God doesn't care about it because He's not acting on it right now. Because He's not throwing it in our faces right now. And so much of the world does that. You can get canceled if you make a mistake. Or if something you did when you were younger just comes to light. Oh, you're a terrible person. You know? And oh, I feel for... Can you imagine the, the younger people growing up today and how we as their parents have put their whole lives on the internet and then they're trying to get a job 30 years from now and it's like, oh, but did you see this picture of you? I was five! You know? Talk to my parents. You know, that's the kind of thing that our world does. That is not the way God treats us. And it's not because He's okay with it. He's demonstrating His patience that He would pass over the sins committed, waiting for the time because He wants us to come to a different place in our lives. He wants our lives to change. And you don't change by being beat up for what you've done wrong. You realize that, right? That's not how you change. That makes you aware of your need for change. Very often, we have our own burden of guilt that we're well aware of before anybody pokes us and points their finger at us. The way we change is by recognizing that there's hope despite that. No matter what you've done. No matter who you are. That this is a God who is being patient that you might have time. And that's the ingredient in hope, is it not? Hope is about a future. And to say that God is patient is to say there is time. There's not an unlimited amount of time. It's appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. You have as much time as you have life, and you don't know how much life you have left. But meanwhile, there is time. There's time right now. That He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. He hears us. He helps with much patience. And how can He do that? Because He also does it at great cost. He helps at great cost. Verse 4, There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared, the psalmist says, and wants us to appropriate that truth. You... There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Forgiveness is not the common word for for ceasing to take an offense into account, for pardoning someone. It's not the the typical word for that. Uh, That word has a sense of of something being lifted away or taken away. This word is not clear of of the image that's behind it, of of, of, the etymology of the word and where it came from. But what is clear is that it is regularly consistently, repeatedly linked with and obtained by atonement. Which is a big word that just means at-one-ment. To become at one. It's, a, it's about reconciliation of parties that were estranged and broken coming back together and being restored Leviticus 4 through 6, Numbers 15 toward the end of the chapter, and other places repeatedly use this word for forgiveness in a context that's talking about sacrifices, animal sacrifices, offerings, and such before the Lord. About forgiveness 
by a substitution. That the Lord's forgiveness is not rooted in keeping a record of wrongs, but in reconciling those who have wronged. It's not the record, but the reconciliation that's in view. That the Lord is willing to bear the cost. Verse 7, with the Lord there is loving kindness. Verse 7 continues, with Him there is abundant redemption. Verse 8, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The word for loving kindness there is that great covenant word, chesed, in the Hebrew. It's hard to translate it. We struggle to, to, to just come up with one word. And if you look through the translations, they use several different words. Chesed, loving kindness here, has to do with, with loyalty. It has to do with faithfulness, with sacrificial love, with concern and compassion, with, with uh, a care for others rooted in a character that is loyal and focused outward. That sort of faithfulness. That's, that's chesed. That's the Lord's loving kindness. Again, it's so much more about Him than about you. That He is faithful and forgiving because He's a faithful and forgiving God. That's His nature, His character. And it's, it's characterized here as abundant redemption. Redemption's about ransom. About rescue, one uh, commentary puts it this way, the basic meaning of the Hebrew root for ransom, for redemption, is to achieve the transfer of ownership from one to another through the payment of a price or an equivalent substitute. Redemption is another one of those Bible words that we tend to gloss over. Maybe in your mind, start substituting ransom or price of a substitute. That's the view here. And this is one of the few places in the Old Testament where it's super clear that God has in mind what we now know from this side of the cross. That God was always planning that there would come a lamb who would take away the sins of the world. That there would always come a, a fulfillment of the animal sacrifices that would never take away sin. That would never cleanse a conscience. That He always had a bigger picture in mind and was just giving sort of visuals along the way of giving a learning aids for His people as we came along. And then we see in the fullness of time God sent His Son born on, of a woman born under the law that He might redeem those who are born under the law. That He might suffer for us. That He might live perfectly and take our place in the punishment due for us. That God Himself might bear the cost of our sin and our brokenness, of our guilt and of our shame. And that He might bear that and pay that fully, accomplishing what you and I could never do in an eternity in hell. Satisfying the justice of God and fulfilling the mercy of God who is loving and gracious, who is just and merciful, and who will take that cost for you and I. As Psalm 103 says between the two verses I read earlier, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness, His chesed, 
toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. This is the God that we're reading about here. This is the place of our hope that the Lord is forgiving. He doesn't end the relationship when you fail. He continues to be gracious. He helps with patience. And that's a cause for, for awe and wonder. If you at all understand your sin and, and your failure, if you have any conscience whatsoever to think that, that God would listen to you at all, much less help you, should drive you to a place of awe and wonder to bow down before Him. And in fact, that, that to me is the sense behind why He would say there is forgiveness with you in verse 4. There's forgiveness for you that you may be feared. That we may be in awe of you. That we might bow down in wonder before you. That we might respect you, honor you, revere you. Because that's just not how human beings interact with each other. And we cut off relationships. We separate from people who offend us. We hide from those that we've offended. And God says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to help you with a lot of patience. If you've raised any children and tried to help them do anything when they were little, right? It requires a tremendous amount of patience. God is a Father full of compassion. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And honoring the Lord, fearing the Lord, understanding His forgiveness, hoping in the Lord has that belief that He hears and that He helps so you can wait. You know, you can wait even when you don't see those things happening. You can wait with real hope. Verse 6, My soul waits. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman in the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. You can wait with, with real hope with your soul, and the sense is, as we talked about last week, kind of your whole being in relationship. You can wait with your soul. You can wait as the watchman waits for the morning. You know, the, the guards standing on duty through the night, straining their eyes for threats and what's coming, you know, Straining their eyes to see and stay alert to everything that's happening. And at the same time as they're paying attention, they're waiting for the morning when the light dawns and the job is so much easier and probably they get released from their duty. They're waiting for that time when, when the stress is off, right? When, when it's a sense of relief. That seems to be the psalmist's note here that he's waiting for the Lord. His soul, his whole being is waiting for the Lord. That that day star would rise. That the light would shine. That there would come not merely the declaration that there is forgiveness, but the experience of it in the depth of their being to know that the Lord has heard. The Lord has helped. And there is forgiveness. There is hope that things will be different that's how you wait with real hope. 
rooted in the Word. And it has to be rooted in the Word. I wait, verse 5 says, for the Lord, my soul does wait. And in His Word do I hope. Waiting with real hope. Waiting expectantly. Waiting with a good confidence that things will be different without an arrogance that you can have whatever you want is the walk of faith rooted in His promises. To believe that what He says is true. And the interesting thing about this is that it's almost like a muscle. Faith Faith has to, has to have something to apply itself to. There's got to be a little bit of exertion there to get the faith muscles going, right? There, there has to be something there. And the thing you'll find is that as, as you start working those faith muscles and you trust God, maybe in little things, you step out in a little bit of faith, then you'll see some things happening that will surprise you and you'll begin to grow some strength and you'll grow more faith. And then, yeah, I'm sorry, but the thing is, you know what? The stronger you go, the, the heavier load you're going to have to lift. You might have to wait longer. That is the nature of the case. The way God works in this world, it seems. Through much is given, much is required. But as you exercise that faith and you walk not by sight, but by faith, you begin to experience that. That confidence. So, so how do you start with, you know, what are the training ways for faith? His Word. Look to His Word with an open mind, with an open heart to say, Lord, I don't know that I believe all of these things in here. They seem pretty far-fetched. But begin to read it. Begin to say, well, what if this was true? I've tried out any number of other things. I believed all kinds of things on no other evidence than, oh, this person said so. What if this really was God Himself speaking through the years and He put His Word here for us? What if this was true? Take a step that way. And see if you don't gain a little bit of strength. See if you don't find some more things happening in your heart and in your life. I was talking with someone just the other day about spiritual gifts, and I said, you know, I think one of my spiritual gifts, God-given gifts, not anything I did, is faith. And I said, I think it's rooted in the fact that the way God came for me The way God saved me, redeemed me, rescued me was something I was completely not looking for. And yet I was kind of looking for it. It was something I never would have chosen. But He came and interrupted me. And as I began to hear what God was saying, to listen to what He says, and, and to begin to, to wonder and to say, you know, this sounds true. This makes more sense of the world than anything else. And as I began to say, Lord, is it possible that I could be forgiven? Is it possible that I could be different? Is it possible that you could fill the longing in my heart and the emptiness that I feel, that I have tried to fill with alcohol and pornography and women and work and achievement, and laziness, and everything else. Lord, is it possible that you could fill those things up? And he began to do just that. In fact, he did it so quickly that I have no doubt that it was a divine intervention. That God saved me. Now, you might not have that experience of grace. 
you might not have that type of experience at all. But I hope you will at least consider my testimony that it happened to me. And in fact, I have witnesses who will say, I am not the man I was in 1993 compared to the man I was in December of 1994. And they might attribute that to other things, but it's a fact. And that fact gives me certainty. That gives me hope. And if you will turn to the pages of Scripture and say, Lord, show me these facts. Show me these reasons to believe that I can be different. These reasons to believe that my circumstances can be different. The reasons to believe that you are who you say you are. That you will hear me and you will help me. Try it. Apply it. This is who He is. That you can persevere with hope. Because He is a God who hears and a God who helps those who honor Him. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray for those here today who don't have hope. But Lord, I pray You would help them take their eyes off of their circumstances to to cry out to You in the midst of the depths that they're experiencing. The depths of sorrow, the depths of their own guilt, the depths of their brokenness and strained relationships, the depths of the uncertainty they face with the future, job losses, or anything else that's going on, Lord. Move their hearts to cry out to You and to experience the confidence that You do here. Even if you don't answer their prayers with what they expect, that that you are listening in every place, Lord, with so, so much grace, and that you will help, Lord, with much patience toward them at great cost to yourself. That, Lord, they might wait, even if it be till you return or till you call them home. Give us that grace, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.